All right, everyone, good morning to you. Why, thank you, Colonel. Good morning, everyone. Why don't you grab a seat if you would? So many good things happening. If we haven't met, my name is Jose. I'm one of the pastors here. We're thrilled that you're here to join us for worship, whether online or here in the building. A couple of things that you uh, need to know, especially the next seven days. Uh, next Sunday, every Sunday is special for different reasons, but next Sunday is super special in that we take about three times a year and invite people who are ready to celebrate their new life in Jesus through water baptism. And we also want to celebrate moms and dads who God has blessed them with a child. And we want to do child dedications and baptisms all on the same Sunday and just have a whole focus. And we'll continue in our series in 1 Corinthians, but really thinking about the new life that comes in Jesus. So if you have yet to be baptized in water since following Jesus, we totally encourage you to take that step of faith. People ask all the time, well, when should I get baptized? I'm not sure if I'm ready. Have you chosen to put your trust in Jesus? That's a great time to be baptized. Right then, right there. So we, want, uh, we would love to be prepared for you. We already have some that are. So simply go to our website. You could register online. That would be helpful. The same thing for those of you parents who want to have your child dedicated next Sunday. Uh, also coming up, a big switch that Ryan... Uh, mentioned last week, we usually have done a spring break youth trip that has now moved to uh, winter um, youth camp, and we're doing that alongside Cedarville Bible Church, so registrations are live, you can just go to our website, and you can click the link, and we would love to see every middle school or high school schooler there and spend an extended weekend, not just with people from our church, but we're a part of the Jesus people all across the city, aren't we? And so it's great to be able, if you're a young person, just to celebrate and think about faith and Jesus and life with some other young people that you probably see at school. So I would encourage you to register. And as we always say, there is a cost to it because we like for them to break even, but parents, never let the cost be the factor. And if you uh, just reach out to Ryan and connect with us, we would love to offer scholarship and sponsorship. If that is uh, a, a need, that's why we're the people of God. And as we give generously, Week in and week out, we're able to help those who say, like, you know what? We want our kids there, and we want to make that happen, so don't let costs be uh, a factor. Uh, speaking of costs and budget, we've committed to do a regular update about once a quarter, just where we are. For those of you, this is your church home. Uh, our fiscal year uh, starts on October 1, and so I want to throw up a few slides just to, this is not updated on our website yet. I wanted to share it first. There's lots of reasons to rejoice. So a couple of things, and for those of you who are newer to church, we just give because Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. We want to live generously because God is generous. And this is just a track for those of you who realize what's been happening since prior to COVID, during COVID, and after the last four years in orange to your right, uh, this is what was given in as of September 30th from October 1 last year. Uh, $1.65 million uh, came in through the doors, which if you, as you see the trend, by God's grace, during and through COVID and even after, with fewer people uh, physically coming, uh, God has still worked generosity through his people. So we ought to celebrate. And for those of you who've been here, you would know I got up in July and gave a report that we were about uh, $125,000 behind in our giving in July. That's like a couple of months ago. And you just radically stepped in. I, I have no problem saying it. One family stepped in to the tune of $100,000 
and said, I wanna give generously to my church. I love what God's doing. And everyone has stepped in so that, if we go to the next slide, please, uh, where are we at? Uh, so for 22-23, our actual giving, just Sundays, online, our regular tithes, offerings, was about 1.38. And then you say, how do you get to the 1.6? Well, we decided to renovate our space, those of you gave generously towards that, in uh, 2021. And because of that, on days we don't use it over the last year, the Lord brought in $112,000 just renting out the space. Isn't that a gift that we, we can do this? So your generosity and above and beyond giving a couple of years ago is literally paying off every year as other people are able to meet here and it helps provide. Then the other 162,000, uh, we lead and sponsor the big youth camp with like six churches or so. And so all of the registration fees come in through us and then go out. So, so when you think of 1.65, it wasn't all in just general generosity. Some of that is through uh, fees, which basically pays for the camp. So how did we do in terms of the end of the fiscal year? Um, God allowed us, if we can go to the next slide, please. Uh, with 1.657, we squeaked it out with $2,000 to spare. <laughs> Hallelujah. We ought to rejoice. We ought to thank God. I mean, being 125000 behind a couple of months before the end of the fiscal year, those of you in business know, it's hard to turn it that quickly. But every time you've been invited just to be generous because God is generous, every single time in our almost 12 years, you've stepped in. And so I just wanna say thank you on behalf of the elders and the leaders here because you have been faithful to give. And so when we started our new fiscal year, because we did have so many in savings, we started with just shy of $100,000 and that's where we are. And so we'll be updating the website, but I wanted to share it first uh, with you live. Where are we moving forward towards? So we're in a new fiscal year and here's our projected goal. Minimum is 1.7. Uh, just simply because the cost of everything goes up a little bit. Uh, inflation is a real thing. Have you heard of that word? So, so there's no like massively new project or program. It would take 1.7 to do what we did uh, this year just because of the cost of goods. But our prayer, and pr pray with me towards that, our prayer is that we would have our stretch goal met, which would be closer to 2 million. And here's why. Since the day one of this church, we've committed to love God and love the world by planting churches, by sharing the gospel around the world and here at home, by doing things that matter, taking care of the poor and needy. And what's happened during COVID, I can give you the big picture trend, is we've had to shrink back a little bit from the things that are near and dear to our heart just because paying for the reality of everything that goes on here has been high. And so we wanna grow in our generosity to things that matter. I'll give you one example that's not in our budget, but we just wanna trust God and invite you to step in. I'm going in two weeks to Vietnam, to Hanoi, and I've been invited by a group of pastors. I'm gonna be part of an outreach that's happening there. But this group of pastors, they're, they're looking for long-term partnerships to do outreach um, all across Vietnam. And so I'm going there to speak at some events, but really to meet with the pastors and leaders towards something that could be long-term for us as a local church. I don't know if that's what God is saying, but we're going to explore. And so in order to do these things, to share the gospel around the world, to plant churches, to do justice, to show mercy, it just requires an influx of funds. And so we don't have a big project yet to support in Vietnam, but as we have, we can do. 
We have ongoing work in Uganda each year. We have ongoing work in Romania each year. We have ongoing partnerships with Remember New and all sorts of other organizations that are near and dear to our heart. Here's the goal. We want to, by faith, bring in all of our needs for everything that we do here as a church through the generosity of God's people. That's the goal. And we wanna be able to take, by faith, everything that comes in from the building rentals and our above and beyond giving to bless the world. We wanna become the most radically generous people because that's what Jesus is like. And so I'm just inviting you as we begin our new fiscal year, so to speak, to dream big and just to continue what you've been doing faithfully. You are a generous people. All right, four things, and then I'm gonna invite our, our guest teacher to come up this morning. Next slide, if you would. How can we all make a difference? We can pray, and that's not trite Christianese. I think sometimes we just don't have because we don't ask. And when it comes to generosity, what does God want me to do in the coming year? I'm inviting you to pray. Everyone can give generously and regularly. Thank you, so many of you automate your giving Uh, You do it uh, through ACH. You give it every month faithfully. You know what? It's so encouraging when you know you're stepping forward and you know you're stepping forward with the team. So thank you for those who are doing it. Some of you, especially, I'm gonna invite you to consider a special year-end gift. A big chunk of our funding that projects where we're going happens in October and November and December. And so I'm gonna invite you to pray about what God would have you to do. And then check with your employer on matching gifts. I can just say this, Nike and Intel, we're authorized to receive matching gifts. So you, those of you in those worlds, you can give through your employer and often it's doubled or quadrupled sometimes depending on your employer. So giving the same amount, God could expand your generosity through your swoosh or your chip or whatever it is that you have. <laughs> this is just being wise, right? Let's be wise. And so I just encourage you, do your part and I'll be able to report a year from now of the faithfulness of God through us together. So rejoice. I wanna say thank you. All right, turning the page, I I, I wanna invite our uh, guest teacher to come today, Dan Braga and his wife Alexis. I've known him since uh, 2004, and at the time, Dan was a youth pastor in Twin Falls, Idaho, and we did an event together called Rock the Canyon in 2024, uh, 24 and uh, 2005, and we've stayed connected all these years, and I'll let him share the story, but basically because of your generosity, uh, we were able to be one small part of a church plant in San Diego called Neighbors. So I wanted, we've been trying to do this for years, Dan, but the small bug came, wiped the world out, and post-COVID, here we are, and Dan was teaching at Western Seminary on Friday, and we invited him to stay, and um, he's a part of our family. Dan is not a stranger. You're not only part of the kingdom of God, but you belong to 26 West and we belong to neighbors. And so I'm gonna invite you to do something ridiculous. Could you stand to your feet? Because planting a church is one of the hardest things that you will ever do in your life if God calls you. And I'm just gonna invite you on the count of three to give the most boisterous yell, hoop, holler. And if you do country, do a line dance, whatever it is. Can we just thank Dan and Alexis for being faithful to follow God's calling in their life and to do what God's called to do. One, two, three. Well, uh, 26 West, uh, when when I heard I had the opportunity to come here and share with you guys, from the bottom of my heart, uh, from the bottom of Alexis's heart, 
from Neighbors Church in City Center, San Diego. There is this vibrant, alive, hungry church full of 20-year-olds at this point. Pray for us. We need some, we need some gray hair. We need some wisdom. Uh, but there's this vibrant, multiplying community. And your generosity actually carried us through COVID. Uh, I'm, I've been in the church planning world for about 25 years. And I watched COVID um, take out a lot of my church planting friends and a lot of baby church plants. And we planted uh, in 2019. And about four months later, they shut us down. And I thought for sure, this is just not going to be able to survive. But the larger kingdom of God stepped in around us and supported us. And not only did we survive, we ended up thriving. And so now, like you, uh, we're at that crossover point at year four, post-2020. We're looking at what has happened to the church. And church planting world is very similar to mid and large-sized churches like this. There's this change that has happened in the economy and in the culture of the church. And so we are moving now into becoming a self-sustaining community and looking forward to long-haul church and ministry and church planting in San Diego. We planted a church last year. We're planting another church in 2025. I just, I want you folks to get a hold of what your little bit of generosity is doing that you'll just never understand the reach that you have with these little moments uh, of obedience And so, yeah, as Jose said, I've known him for many, many years, and he has just become one of the dearest friends and a confidant and a counselor. When I first first met Jose, I had a wild mane of hair as a youth pastor that flowed like Samson's locks. And uh, now uh, there's a little sneak peek. I've caught up to him. And so uh, there we are. Stay bald, friend. St. Paul the Apostle, the book of Corinthians. Well done, church. Great book to be in. Let's talk about preaching the gospel today. In this moment of schism, splintering and factionalism, I pray you, the people of God, would understand the unity and the joy and the love that he has given to us and wants to work through us in this world. Would you join me? And let's say a brief prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this day, as we do across the globe, set apart, to sing songs, to worship the king, to smile, to have cups of coffee, to share stories, to catch up on the goings-on of the week and the week to come, to pray and to hear the gospel preached. I do pray specifically for these saints that this day as they once again sit under the word, there would be a refreshment and a renewal, a hope, a strength, a conviction, a correction for each of us individually and uniquely. You, our Father, know exactly what we need in this moment. These loved ones carry burdens into this place, unspoken and spoken, worries and concerns, fears and uncertainties, and you steadfastly and most certainly are with them, aware of that, and have for them provision and protection. Enable them in this next 30 minutes to just trust and be children, children of God, loved, cared for, watched over, and may they worship you. And may we worship you in word and deed in our cities, in our respective spheres of influence. May we be heralds of the gospel. May we preach Christ crucified. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. You know, there have been uh, communication and communicators throughout history that have left literally their indelible mark on all of our collective memories. 
These types of speakers, just by a simple turn of phrase or tone of voice, they seem to have been able to calm cultural storms that were raging. They could unify splintering factions. They could fortify resilience just with their words. They literally shaped the contours of hope and transformation for entire generations and beyond their own generation. Winston Churchill, I'm in a deep dive right now. I've become utterly enamored with Winston Churchill and his ability to lead through the clamor and the calamity of World War II. The man virtually willed the victory of the Allied forces by his oratorical flair and flourish. He was something to behold both in word and indeed. John F. Kennedy's ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Those words echoed through the rest of the 60s, the tumult of the Vietnam War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the sexual revolutions. And in that same decade, a black Baptist preacher's voice boomed from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial saying, I have a dream. And with those words, he inspired an entire nation to make that dream a reality, something for which we are still striving. Now, though those orators are gone, these and many other great speakers, their words continue to reverberate throughout the generations, inspiring and challenging, and reminding us of what we could be, what we want to be, what we should be. Church, today in this splintered, chaotic, and I would propose dangerous moment, all of us, we tend to be listening, we're looking for, we're hunting that new voice. Where, where will come the speaker who can rise above and speak into and out of the cacophony of opinions and conflict and confusion and frustration and rage and the social noise that is surrounding us? I feel like collectively as a society and as a church, we find ourselves leaning in and cupping our ears we're straining to hear words that just won't ring hollow anymore or words that won't fall flat or words that won't eventually obviously prove false. We are starved for honest messaging, healing in tone, and humble in heart. So if you're like me, you listen to Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan on your podcasts at two times speed, of course, because if you can just cram more content, maybe somewhere in all the expertise that they offer us, we'll have some whisper of sanity, some clarity in the confusion. We follow famous YouTubers and Instagram influencers. We emulate their lifestyles. We reproduce their recipes to keep our hormone, our hormone levels optimal and our stubborn belly fat minimal. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about. We decorate our homes as they do so that we can create our inner sanctums and do our yoga and do everything that we do that they do because what we're doing is we're listening for that key. What is the key to their fulfilled and satisfied life? I want to live that. Some of us, we pay attention to the political sound bites, the cultural commentary. At least I find myself when I'm listening to the talking heads asking, is it this policy? Is it this promise from this platform, this message that may be the one that finally helps me, helps my situation in this city, helps us as a society? And so all of us, we're listening for that special orator who by turn of phrase and tone of voice could change everything. We ask, who is that going to be? Where will he, she arise from? And I want to argue this morning that I think St. Paul the Apostle, the great church planter and evangelist of the first century would say, it's you, it's you, and it's you, and it's you, and it's you, in all of your gorgeous grandeur, 
as living, saved souls of the King. It is you. The life-changing speakers that we are all longing for and looking for and listening for, they are sitting in this auditorium right now. You are sitting to the next great orator of history. <laughs> Look to the person next to you and say, wow. <laughs> the message that all of humanity needs to hear is already, church, in our hearts and on our lips. You and I, the unseen, regular, everyday people of Jesus Christ's communities, we are the communicators of integrity and humility and healing and hope for this cultural moment. And what we preach is the good news of Christ crucified. That is our entire meditation for the morning. You guys ready to rock and roll? Okay, let's do this. Paul the Apostle unquestionably goes down in history as one of the most influential communicators to have ever said anything anywhere. Now, Paul's words, they weren't potent because he was an original thinker of sorts. We're studying Paul's words in this auditorium this morning over 2,000 years later because Paul was a plagiarist in the best sense of the word plagiarism. Paul was simply cutting and pasting and paraphrasing the teachings of his rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, while also simultaneously, not only his words, but his life, he embodied his master's upside-down, counterintuitive, kingdom-of-heaven ethic and politic and practice. Though Paul was trained in the most respected rabbinic schools, think Harvard, Yale, the Ivy League schools of his day, and though he held a relatively high and coveted position on the social pyramid of his day, Paul had chosen to leave all of that. He counted the world's ways as rubbish in comparison to knowing and heralding King Jesus. He had made it his entire life's goal, purpose, reason, and existence. Now, at this point in the book of Corinthians, by the notes that Jose sent me, Paul has been working a series of comparisons and contrasts. He's been trying to illustrate for the Corinthian church that Jesus Christ's teachings are the single most important message for every single human on this planet. And Paul has been emphasizing that the message of Jesus's life and death and resurrection is the only true source of hope and healing for all of humanity. That's not overstated, friends. That's New Testament salvific gospel theology. He critiqued, Paul did, Paul critiqued his contemporary culture's messaging about what salvation constituted based on, for his culture, salvation was based on wisdom from human minds and religious effort. And so what Paul did is he highlighted this backwards and shocking message of a crucified God as savior. It was a message that was so ridiculous that as you guys learned a couple weeks ago from one of the teachers, I found this quote quite compelling. Gordon Fee commented on this, no mere human in their right mind or otherwise would ever have dreamed up God's scheme for redemption through a crucified Messiah. It is too preposterous, too humiliating for a deity. Paul was also simultaneously deconstructing the social hierarchies of his culture that were polluting the Corinthian church's culture because they carried the social hierarchies of the world into their church gatherings. And Paul was having none of that. And so he was reminding the Corinthian church that their worth and their value and their place in the economy of God wasn't because they'd arrived or they'd earned it or they were smarter or faster or wealthier or wiser or more beautiful or just generally better than the rest. No, in fact, Paul reminded the Corinthian church 
that they were the exact opposite of what Roman culture valued and considered wise and beautiful and good and true. They came from the bottom of the barrel, most of them. They were the dregs and the down and outs, most of them. They'd lived on the margins at the low points of society. Most of them had been the opposite of what their culture said was powerful and good and wise. And so like his rabbi Jesus, Paul spoke to the people alongside the people as one with his people. So we learn from Paul how to speak. Lesson number one this morning from Paul in this passage, how to speak, the way that we speak. He says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. The people of Paul's day, they valued lofty talk, rhetorical persuasiveness. They loved oratorical flair. In fact, in many cases, a speaker was not judged by the validity of their content, but by how they delivered their content. And so a speaker in Paul's day could stand up and say the most empty and ridiculous things and be applauded if they pleased the ear of the audience, while another, another might stand up with deep conviction and their content was of infinite value, but be booed off the stage for their lack of charisma and their ineffectual presentation. And Paul would have none of that either. Paul had left that empty and anemic world behind in pursuit of the kingdom of God. And so Paul was utterly convinced that the means and the ways of mere mortals could do absolutely nothing for the well-being of humanity. If anything, Paul saw that all the empty talk and the trust in rhetoric and the pursuit of oratorical flair over truth and actual valid content Paul believed that that was damaging to the souls, damaging and toxic to the hearers. So instead, as Paul arrives in this pagan city of Corinth, he opts for the exact opposite way in his way of communication, the way he spoke, the way we speak. Rather than high-sounding, high-status speech, Paul spoke simply. He didn't rely on the latest philosopher's musings, or the most recent arguments of the intelligentsia to make his points, Paul's sole purpose was to proclaim God's work in and through his son, Jesus Christ, in the most simple of terms possible, without flair, without pomp, without circumstance. Now, dear friends, you and I, we find ourselves in the exact same predicament that Paul found himself in 2,000 years ago in the city of Corinth. Our social values are really no different than the Corinthians in so many ways. Our society loves high-sounding arguments given by only the most well-read experts in their fields. And so, see if you disagree with me, if a scientist or a well-known sociologist or a psychologist with some pop-level psych books that have done really well on the New York Times bestseller, if those folks, scientists, sociologists, psychologists, if they say such and such and so and so, our culture collectively yields to that authority as if God has spoken from on high. Now, don't get me wrong here. I love those disciplines. I read broadly in those disciplines, science, psychology, sociology. But at the end of the day, those are the disciplines of humanity and limited by a human mind in our myopic, tiny little perspective. They do not hold ultimate truth and they do not have absolute authority. They're helpful, but they're not absolute. Therapists have become our culture's pseudo-saviors. Our society is desperately trying to find healing 
from the wounds that it has incurred from this broken world by having lengthy conversations on a couch with a trained clinician. And again, please do not mishear me. I love my therapist (laughs) and I see my therapist when I need to. And I sit on his couch as a trained clinician and I say, dear therapist, help me. But I would never say, dear therapist, save me. Very, very different, loved ones. Very different. Culturally, somehow, with the rise of social media, we have become convinced that the more followers an influencer has on Instagram, the more valid their advice must be and the the more great their wisdom must be on whatever topic they are speaking about at hand. Celebrities and Hollywood stars, they weigh in on the complex moral conundrums of our day. Why? Well, because we give ear. It's something about their enlarged image on a movie screen or their enlarged amount of followers on their Instagram. That, that must mean that they're equally endowed with expertise in areas that they've probably never read a single page on. And this tendency in some ways is deafening the ears of Jesus Christ's communities. The simple message of Jesus, spoken by humble people without power, of less education, lower on the social totem pole, is sometimes unintentionally or intentionally dismissed by the Christian community because we are just as tempted to fix our attention on the educated elites, the power brokers and the upper castes, the celebrities and the famous as the voices to lead us forward. You know, there is a plague in the modern church that I believe Jesus is dismantling at this season of the church, the celebrity-driven, fame-based, ladder-climbing, comparative and competitive tone in the leaders of the church and their followers. You are as guilty as I in this whole thing. We're the church together. This whole thing pollutes the message of the servant king, Jesus. It goes without saying that the greatest orator to have ever spoken in all of human history was Jesus of Nazareth. Not because of Jesus' flair, and not because of his fame, and not because of his power brokerage, but because of what he actually said and what he actually did. Think about this. A blue-collar nobody from a backwater province, tucked away in the most powerful empire at that time of the world, he went about his days along the shores of Galilee in various areas in Israel, talking about the value of sparrows, the clothing of the lilies of the fields, mustard seeds, and poor people. Core to the message of Jesus was that his kingdom was not like the world's kingdoms, nothing like it. The lowliest servants were the greatest in the economy of King Jesus's world. The weak were strong. The poor were rich. There was almost nothing about Jesus's teachings that did not stand in stark contrast to what human society has valued and fought wars for. And his life, death, and resurrection were, of all events in human history, the most upside-down, counterintuitive, disorienting event ever to have occurred in the cosmos. God gave life by dying, conquered evil by, 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 not by crushing it, but by absorbing it into himself, by being crushed by it. He forgave his enemies, making them family because he loved them. This was as Fee said, preposterous, outlandish, crazy. And dear church, it was and is the only message and means by which God intends to heal and save humanity from itself. And so Paul, 
resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We learn from Paul the way we speak, but we also learn the words that we actually speak as the voice of God in this world. Paul resolved to speak of Jesus and his crucifixion in the city of Corinth. Now, I want to be careful here because I think we make mistakes if we become too reductionistic in the way that we read the Bible. I don't want us imagining that Paul arrives in the city of Corinth and he's, he's ready to preach the gospel and he's resolved to preach nothing but Jesus and him crucified. So he walks about the streets in the city of Corinth just on repeat. Jesus was crucified. 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 That's, that's obnoxious, right? <laughs> This is the very thing that Paul did not want to do. He did not want to distract or be obnoxious. He was hypersensitive to the way that the gospel would come into a culture, penetrate that culture, and like leaven in the loaf, raise that culture up. Like mustard seeds planted, slowly the kingdom would arise out of that. He was so sensitive to that thing, to those things. Paul as a missiologist, Paul as a sociologist, Paul was a brilliant missionary and a cultural genius. I Honestly, one of the humans I cannot wait to meet the most when I get into the kingdom of God and resurrected life is St. Paul the Apostle. And I just want to sit and pick the man's brain. He was just absolutely brilliant. In the accounts of his missionary endeavors in the book of Acts, we see Paul interacting with and engaging with the contemporary politics, the contemporary ideas, the contemporary idols of his listeners. But he was doing so solely as a means of getting to and explaining the crucifixion of Jesus as the ultimate answer to all of their questions and problems. We see very clearly from Paul's letters that he leaned heavily on his rabbinic education. He drew from his Jewish heritage. He actually used his Roman citizen status often throughout the book of Acts, all to further illustrate and illuminate the crucifixion of Jesus as the fulfillment of all unmet hopes. You and I, right now, where you sit in your seat, O great orator, generation shaper, You, you have been placed in your sphere of influence with your particular education, with your perspectives, with your heritage and your ideas and your social position to speak the message of Jesus Christ crucified. Now, this does not mean that we do so obnoxiously or mechanically, God forbid, or with complete disregard for the contextual and social narratives into which we are communicating As I said, I personally read very broadly across the disciplines of politics and science, economics, psychology, sociology, and I'm not an expert in any of those fields. I'm not even considered a jack of all trades. I know just enough to be in trouble whenever I get around somebody that actually studies those disciplines. But they do inform the way that I explain Jesus Christ crucified as the answer that all of these disciplines are looking for. And so obviously... Obviously, none of us are to walk into our workplaces tomorrow and just on repeat like a skipping record. Jesus Christ was crucified for you. Jesus Christ was crucified for you because you've resolved from Sunday morning and Dan's teaching that it's time to go and preach the gospel. We obviously are not to do something like that. We, you, I, tomorrow are going to inculturate. I think that's a word that I just made up. Inculturate? Is that a word? I don't know. It sounds right, though. Enculturate. We're going to bring into the culture the crucifixion message through your particular experiences, your relationships, your position, your history, all of those things. God has given you those things to enculturate, to bring the crucifixion message into your sphere of influence. And listen, dear, dear one, your father, our father knows what we need. And so he has given us the exact level of education, the exact 
level of answers that we have to the questions that scare us, the exact background, the exact experiences to translate the crucifixion of Jesus into the lives of those to whom we have been sent. And I just want to say something that goes probably without saying at this point in modern Christian places, but I I need to say it. You may be one of those folks that assumes that, hey, everyone just by nature of being American knows that Jesus Christ was crucified for their sins, right? That's just kind of common American parlance. Our culture is what sociologists call (laughs) post-Christian, more so now than ever. There are hundreds of thousands of people in our cities and in our workplaces that literally do not know that Jesus Christ was crucified for them. Dearest friends, I was one of those people at 21 years old. I had never heard at 21 years old, nobody had ever told me Jesus was crucified for, I didn't even know who Jesus was. I'd never stepped foot in a church And friends, I was raised in a tiny little farming town in southern Idaho, surrounded by Bible-thumping conservative Christians and a huge Mormon population. And nobody shared with me that Jesus Christ had been crucified for my sins. Now, my Mormon friends, I have distinct memories of my Mormon friends when I was in elementary school, trying to give me an image of who they thought Jesus was. And I took away from that, that Jesus said, you can't drink Coke or Pepsi because of the caffeine in it. (laughs) And that all of my favorite cuss words were to be modified to things like gosh darn it and frick. And I just, I just did not, it just didn't land. It just did not land. But, and looking at you guys, oh, this church reminds me so much of my home church in Idaho the church that I came, became a Christian in. I prayed like crazy this morning that I wouldn't get emotional. <clears throat> the place where Jesus Christ saved me, this church reminds me so much. You folks, just your demeanor, your, your, your stage of life, just the tone, the demographic in this room, so much like where I was raised and trained. And I, I will never forget Roxy Ottman. She was, she was not eloquent. She was not highly educated. She was this simple little redheaded cowgirl from Hazleton, Idaho. And at that point in my life, uh, when I met her, I was what you would consider a very, very, very heavy drinker. And I was dealing with a, a, a clinically drug-induced uh, psychosis. Uh, the LSD just got a hold of me. It whipped me right out of sanity. And I'd been actually in a, I was fresh out of a treatment program. Uh, there was a failed suicide at that point in my life. And uh, an old high school friend, Jason Graybill, had convinced me to meet with his, his aunt Because, Dan, because, man, she's a Christian, and you're kind of crazy, and she's a Christian, and she can help you. (laughs) I was like, so am I still going to be able to drink Coke? Because I love Coke, man. (laughs) No, it wasn't like that at all. In all honesty, at that point in my life, I was was terribly demonized. uh, Terribly demonized. And so when I met Roxy on January 1st, 1998, I was coming out of like a five-day binge, talking to the walls, all sorts of fun stuff. And she saw it. She saw the demons. She saw a soul tattered. And she stood against it with all of her red-haired, five-foot-one might. And she sat there and she looked me straight in the eye after I'd gotten on my rant about Jesus and all you Christian people and I don't like you and blah, 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 blah. And she looked me straight in the eye, didn't wince, and she said, Jesus Christ was crucified for you so you can be forgiven and healed. Church, it was the words It was the words, it was the words, Jesus Christ was crucified for you. Something in the moment of the spirit opened my soul and I was what we've called now for 2000 years, saved, delivered. Yeah, hallelujah. You and I once again need to return to the old school, simple gospel, but that's actual words. That's actual words. That's actual 
things that we say in context of conversation. Yes, absolutely. I love practicing relational hospitality. Our house is constantly full of every kind of stripe of people that you could possibly imagine. All in the name of getting to a place of saying, Jesus Christ was crucified for you. Yes, we do apologetics to try to answer the social questions and the scientific questions so that we can say, Jesus Christ was crucified for you. Yes, we use science and psychology to build a bridge and engage another person's interests. But at the end of the day, we say, and you know what? None of that matters because Jesus Christ was crucified for you. And it's not only the words that we say, it's our way. We must be able to embody the message of crucifixion, the way of delivery. So the way we speak, not with eloquence, but with simplicity, the words we speak, Jesus Christ was crucified for you, but the way of delivery, the embodiment of the message. Just give me another five or 10 minutes. Paul was very aware. Paul, Paul of all people was very aware that he did not hold the high cultural, he didn't hold the cultural high ground with the message of Jesus Christ crucified. The man had been, at this point, mocked and beaten, cast out. He'd almost been killed on numerous occasions because of his resolution to preach Christ crucified. And so when Paul arrives in the city of Corinth, it's not a delivery of the message of Jesus Christ crucified with a lot of power and a huge platform and pomp and circumstance. Paul arrives on the scene in Corinth, scared and overwhelmed and resolved to share the message of Jesus Christ. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. I don't think I could come up with a better description for how I feel every time I'm sitting on an airplane and the guy next to me says, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> and I have, I've got kind of an out now because I'm a professor at Western Seminary adjuncting there. So I can say, hmm, I teach religion as a professor. That's kind of neutral. So then I can feel out where the conversation is going to go. Back before this, I just have to, I just be like, all right, you just asked me, I'm a pastor. Fear and trembling, here we go. We're about to talk about Jesus on the airplane. It is justified for us to feel weak and great fear, to literally start to tremble at the prospect of sharing the gospel in this cultural moment. As society is repaganizing, which is what's happening around us, not becoming more secular and atheistic, we're gonna get a lot more worshipy in this society a lot more weird with worshipy and gods in this society. And so as we re-paganize in this post-Christian era, we modern communicators of the, of the cross, we face a, a double struggle. The message of Jesus is difficult enough, but we're also dealing with the artifacts and the effects of a cultural Christianity that held the social power position here in the United States for most of our history until about the last 75 years. Maybe the last 50 years, we've seen the real unleashing of the loss of cultural power within Christendom. And so throughout church history, when the church has held political and social power, it has never fared well in purity and integrity. And the story here in the States is absolutely no different. Paul was speaking something new into the culture, not understood already, and from the margins. You and I have the double trouble of speaking a difficult message, Christ crucified for your sin, but we're also speaking into a culture that has a corrupted and polluted version and vision of Christianity. Christianity, for most of my friends in San Diego that don't know Jesus, is first associated with scandal, with greed, with hypocrisy. The minute I say I'm a pastor to somebody that doesn't go to church, I'm immediately posited with a particular political persuasion, whether I want to be or not. That means as soon as we say that we're Christian, we are going to be pigeonholed and judged to be a whole host of things that we are absolutely not. That makes us, like Paul, weak. 
We don't have the cultural high ground. We're not in the power position. And so we speak from that place. There's a level of humility that that immediately creates. And of course, of course, we are justified in fearing losing the respect of our peers and our coworkers and our friends and family members. Of course, we tremble at the prospect of being pushed out of our social circle. None of us wants to be mocked as one of those people or misunderstood as, oh, great, one of those people. Most of those people were actually not. And that is actually, please stay with me on this one point. If you get nothing from this Sunday morning, get this one. That is actually how we come to embody the message of the cross. Thomas Akempis, in The Imitation of Christ, one of the great historical saintly writings, said this. The cross always stands ready and everywhere awaits you. It's a dense little quote. And what he meant is that the message of the cross is always ready to do its work in every place. Wherever the message of the cross is preached... God's work through the cross will be done. And Kempis was saying, most importantly, that work of the cross will be done in the heart of the herald, in the heart of the one preaching, teaching, giving the message. To give the message of the cross means that we don't float into the room a foot above the ground in some sort of self-made righteousness that makes us better and wiser than all the rest. To preach the message of the cross actually first consumes us with this absolute passion and compassion, compassion. And it gives us a compassion first for our own failings and then for the failings of the ones to whom we are speaking. The message of the cross always everywhere is making us personally aware of our imperfections so that through our imperfect words spoken by us as imperfect people to imperfect people, the perfections of Jesus and his love might be made known. That was a mouthful. (laughs) And maybe the most difficult aspect of embodying the message of the cross is that just as they resisted, hear this, church. Please hear this anew and afresh. Just as they resisted, hated, and persecuted Jesus. Not Jesus's worldview, not Jesus's politics, not Jesus's, Jesus himself, his life and his message so too will his apprentices, us, his students, his followers. It is normal for us to be resisted, hated, and persecuted like him. And so our fear and trembling is justified. That is terrifying. Because inherent in the message of the cross is the possibility of embodying some form of crucifixion, loss of respect amongst our peers. To proclaim the crucified Christ may result in us being pushed to the margins. To embody the message of the cross is to die on our own cross in some sense for the sake of the other, just as Jesus did for us. And therefore, you and I are very, very tempted to fall silent. We just won't communicate who we are. We just won't say the words. And this is where embodying the message of Jesus, and the cross in particular, comes truly alive. In our moments of fear and trembling and skin-saving silence, The cross reminds us that what awaits us on the other side of that silence is what? An abundance, a Pacific Ocean of unending, unconditional grace embracing us with no condemnation. That's the message of the cross. With every moment of silence, when we know we could have, we've all gotten in the car after that meeting and been like, I should have, 
We've all gotten off the airplane. I could have in that family moment. There's no way I'm gonna do this right now. It's gonna light off a bomb. I'm not even gonna talk about Jesus. I know they don't like me. We've all done that. We've all done that a thousand times over. And you wanna know what embodying the message of the cross teaches us? We are loved, 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 loved. Welcomed, welcomed, welcomed with open opportunities and more opportunities in the future. And so slowly, with every moment of silence and failure to speak, more grace piles up, more forgiveness piles up, more love and acceptance piles up like a river beginning to press against a dam until suddenly in a moment, we will all have these moments where that moment comes again. I could say something. I shouldn't say something. This may cost me quite a bit. And we will reflect. The Spirit will bring to our minds all those moments of silence and the message of the cross will be forgiveness and unconditional love and the dam in all of that river piling up will just burst and we will find ourselves, maybe not very articulately, with trembling voice shaking, Jesus Christ was crucified for you out of an act of just sheer praise and adoration that Jesus loves me whether I say something right now or not. I am loved and accepted whether I say something right now or not. I am loved and accepted whether I say it right or I don't say it right. Whether I tremble and my knees knock or I say it courageously and boldly, I am loved, 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 and I am going to embody the message of the cross and I'm going to say Jesus was crucified for you. And so from Paul, we learn that we don't need the wisdom of the world or grand persuasive oratory skills We need the power of Christ crucified for us. The love and administration of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our hearts, transforming us, welcoming us. And so Paul would say, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And so I'll close. In this cultural moment of anger, and splintering, and fear, and frustration. It is a dangerous and fragile moment in which we, this generation of the church, have been placed. We don't need another Churchill, or a Kennedy, or a Martin Luther King. I'm pretty certain that Huberman and Joe Rogan don't have the answers either. I've listened to a lot of them. We need you and I to be the scared out of our wits, trembling, knees quaking, humble, unknown people of Jesus resolved to give the good news that Jesus Christ was crucified for me. Jesus Christ was crucified for you. Those simple words on the lips of the saints spoken over water cooler conversations at work carefully, winsomely, prudently, wisely, maybe at cost, maybe, maybe. Over beers at the pub, cups of coffee in the conversations at the local coffee shops, at the parks to stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home dads. Those words, Jesus Christ was crucified for you, are anointed by God himself, the Holy Spirit. And so, you, dear friends, are the generation shapers. You have the oratory skills to save and heal the cosmos. Resolve. Jesus Christ was crucified for you. I'm going to have the band come up. And I just want to ask you guys a few sort of questions as you sit with this. I'd like for you to, if you can, this is something we do at Neighbors all the time. There's been a lot of brain here. If you could just take a breath into your body, just check in. What are you guys feeling right now as we come to worship? Maybe some of us are feeling tension. Like, oh man, a message about preaching the gospel. Uh, There's no way. There's no way that's going to happen in my life. (laughs) 
Um, maybe you're feeling that. Awesome. I'd like you to take that to Jesus in a time of worship and communion because the cross awaits you in communion and the cross reminds you that even, I say this carefully because I'm not certain that you can be embraced by the love of the cross and not start shouting it to the heavens when you experience. But if you were to never, if you were to never share the gospel ever, Jesus Christ was crucified for you and he loves you. But the more deeply you understand that, the more you'll be like, oh, here it comes. Oh no, I gotta tell him that I love him. It's just gonna flow out of me because... Because this world does not matter anymore. He will provide for you if you don't get the promotion. His cross will heal your family wounds where you've remained silent. Trust me, I come from a rough and tumble situation. And after 25 years, I'm the only Christian in my family. The gospel is slowly beginning to penetrate the chaos that is my family. The cross informs our politics and the cross informs our therapists and the cross informs our sociology. But we're not trained in those disciplines. What you have is the simplicity of the gospel. And so where you feel that resistance, that's an invitation from Jesus Christ to to once again reassert your allegiance to him. I will trust you with my life. I will turn from this world. I will turn from its ways. And out of your love for me, in my imperfections, I will give in my imperfect ways the perfect words, Jesus Christ was crucified for you. There's a number of questions that I'm sure each of you are gonna be wrestling with. Process those things. Get prayer today. I would love for for this entire church to just raise their hands and say, I want fresh boldness to share the gospel. I stand up here on the stage literally reflecting like, when was the last time I said Jesus Christ was crucified for you? And it has to be, I I kind of live in the CrossFit space and it has to be some point in my coaching days. But it's, it's rare. Church world takes pastors and just puts us in this bubble. I learned a lot from Jose on how to get out of that. I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna sing. Father, uh, as we now approach you and worship, what we feel in our bodies, resistance, fear, maybe shame, some maybe feel shame. The cross, the message of the cross, Christ crucified for you means that we can embody a liberated love and acceptance. It's not based on our performance or how well we shared or didn't share. You did the work for us and you welcome us in right now with adoration. You delight in every one of these beautiful souls. You delight in them a thousand times over. You sing over them songs of joy and welcome. And so I just pray for my own heart and for the hearts of these saints that today we might hear your voice a little more fully, that we might join in with the song and the anthems of heaven and beyond, and that it might penetrate earth a little bit more clearly through us. Even this week, Jesus Christ was crucified for you. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen.